Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCooey.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, hosts Chelsea Kerfman and Marcus Funk are joined by Professor Mike Keeler, whose authoritative and influential FCPA professor blog has been described as the Wall Street Journal concerning all things FCPA related. During the conversation, Professor Keeler reflects on the professional road he took to becoming the FCPA professor, provides his candid and in some circles controversial criticism of the DOJ's current and historic enforcement approaches to the FCPA, and outlines what future enforcement trends may look like under the Biden administration. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. This is Chelsea Kerfman, a Perkins partner in the White Collar and Investigations Group. I'm joined by my colleague, Marcus Funk, who is also a White Collar partner, and our guest today, Mike Kaler, who is the really the creator of the very popular FCPA professor website and a general expert in the field. So welcome, Mike. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So, Mike, to kick things off today, I want to ask you a little bit about your kind of professional journey, how you got to where you are now and, and started this website. Well, it was a well-planned journey, not. (laughs) As often happens, you join a big law firm and you do whatever the partners tell you to do. For me, I joined Foley & Lardner, a Milwaukee-based large national firm in the year 2000. And very early in my career, this is kind of dating myself, but the schedule of new matters were literally distributed throughout the firm on a green sheet of paper. It was called the green sheet. And there I saw it, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Now at that point in my young life, I had an interest in pretty much all things international. I had traveled a lot. And just the name of that statute really piqued my interest. Of course, back then, topics like that were not covered in law school, so I knew nothing about the FCPA, but just the topic alone spiked my interest. So as a first year associate, I emailed the Washington DC engagement partner on that. And as things work, I never heard back. <laughs> but, you know, a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, I kept seeing this term, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act pop up. So I was persistent. I, I kept emailing, hey, if you need associate help on this matter, I'd like to get involved. And before you know it, I had a research assignment in the FCPA, which Looking back on it seems kind of funny because what do you really research when it comes to the FCPA? Um, You know, even now in 2021, there's very little case law and you can imagine what type of case law there was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So I was persistent and before you know it, I was hopping on airplanes, going all over the world, conducting internal investigations. Obviously during those trips, there's a lot of time to read, to absorb material. And I kind of was like a sponge when it came to learning about as much as I could about the FCPA. And throughout the years, it was probably, you know, in any given year, 50 to 75% of my my practice. And I very much enjoyed it. I was just going to say, how did you, you know, once you started looking into the FCPA and learning more about it, how did you decide to shift from, you know, the in-house practice to what you're doing now? 
My motivations for becoming a law professor were were many. At this time, I was a senior counsel at, at the law firm. My wife and I had just had twin babies, and I knew that a transition was, um, you know, probably in order. I have always been interested in the law and the FCPA specifically from a where do we go from here? How can this be made better? Why are we doing the things we're doing? And when you think about it, that's not what a lawyer in private practice does on a daily basis to think about those big picture issues. So one of my best mentors in my formative years was was a professor. I had a very good relationship with this person. So being a professor was really always in the back of my mind. And it just was a good point in my life to make this transition. And I knew from an FCPA standpoint, there were obviously a lot of people, you know, talking and writing about the FCPA, but none of them were doing so in the way in which I knew a law professor could, who is not concerned about client conflicts. And quite frankly, I don't really care what the DOJ and the SEC think about me. I'm just calling the balls and strikes as I see them. So, I knew that there was kind of this void for a voice on this topic that was not being offered. So it's kind of funny that I have a website, blog, whatever you want to call it, because my technology skills are, are very limited and were very, very limited. About 10 years ago when I launched my blog, it was kind of a running joke amongst my family those first couple months because I would check to see who was reading my website every day and my dad would make fun of me like, oh, how many readers do you have today? I'm like, well, a couple hundred. And, you know, he was, he was being supportive, but it was kind of a running joke. So when did you formally launch the, the FCPA professor uh, blog? I believe it was in July of 2009. So it's been going on 10, 11 years. And, you know, boy, time really flies. I, you know, it's a labor of love. 90% of the time I, I do enjoy it. But you know, there are some days where it's like, oh, shit, I got to write something today, you know? And, you know, that can take its toll because we all experience life and family crises and, you know, things throughout our life that make it difficult to do something literally on a daily basis, 365 days a year for 10, 11 years straight. But, you know, I sort of plow ahead. And a lot of times I feel like I'm the captain of a big ship in a wide, vast ocean, not knowing who is reading me or finding value in my content. So that's why when I'm able to do things like this, or when I hear from people on social media or through email thanking me for what I do, you know, I greatly value that because in the world in which we live in, you, you put content out on a near daily basis, but you don't always know how people are reacting or responding to that content. Well, I can tell you that you know Chelsea and I also teach a class on the FCPA and have done so for uh, I don't know five, six, seven years, something like that, at the University of Colorado, and we know that our students listen, or rather, uh, read your 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 entries, your daily entries. I can tell you that a number of our our clients, their their compliance officers, are regular readers of yours. So clearly you've had a pretty large and very significant impact in terms of getting, you know, getting readership and frankly sharing your your message, which I, th I think, and I'm curious to get your take on it. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you're not as concerned about what the government thinks, and that may distinguish you from others 
What's your sense of that? I mean, I remember there was a time when you, frankly, were sort of a bit of a gadfly to the to the DOJ and the SEC in terms of your criticism of of how their their enforcement approach was shaping up. How do you explain your success, frankly? How and 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 how do you kind of track the evolution of the uh, of the FCPA professor uh, blog? Well, in terms of feedback, some of my most valued feedback, quite honestly are from current DOJ, SEC, enforcement attorneys or FBI agents who will privately email me and say, I, I, I will never publicly admit this, but you're doing a great job. Keep it up. <laughs> you know, that that's very valuable to me. You know, if the DOJ and the SEC in Washington, D.C. feel threatened by a middle-aged guy in the Midwest with an internet connection, I mean, seriously, they m- probably don't have a very persuasive or well-thought-out enforcement program. Yes, I offer opinions, but I I try to make those opinions grounded in facts, in case law, in legislative history. And I just call the balls and strikes as I see them. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the FCPA, the statute. Of course, it can be improved upon, I think. So that's not the issue. The issue is not the statute. The issue is how the FCPA is enforced whether FCPA enforces enforcement is transparent, whether it's even effective, and what is wrong w- with asking those types of questions as to a law that the DOJ and the SEC have self-identified as being one of the most important laws they enforce, and I think objectively the most important U.S. law when it comes to international business. So if some people view me as a gadfly or controversial, well, maybe they ought to re-examine their beliefs and ask themselves some of the questions and think about this topic in a lens other than their current job, their current clients, or how to make the DOJ and the SEC go away as quickly and efficiently as possible if they're representing businesses, because that's not the the lens I, I look at this through. I, I did look at this area of law through that lens for approximately 10 years. And, you know, sometimes when I go back and, and look at things, I wrote about the FCPA in, in private practice. It was quite clear I, I looked at it through that lens, but that's just not my lens anymore. And you know, in in terms of the the path that you've you've had with the government, how how would you describe your current relationship compared to let's say ten years ago? Well, I, again, I mean, so much of this is just you know things you hear through the grapevine and you know innuendo and hearsay. But people were told don't associate with that guy, and which is just absolutely ridiculous. I'm just calling the balls and strikes as you see them and holding public officials accountable for the law they enforce. And if people have a problem with that, well, (laughs) sorry, I didn't invent fact checking. I sometimes apply it to the FCPA context. You know, I've invited SEC and DOJ officials to engage, to do Q&As, to do podcasts, reviews, which is just fine. That's, That's their right. But, you know, it's just a bit disappointing how they will accept invitations to these, you know, pay to play mega conferences and and, you know, portray themselves to be rock stars and get softball questions lodged to them by practitioners. But they won't 
answer fact-based questions by a law professor. But, you know, again, nothing I can do about it. And, and that's obviously something you've written uh, about quite a bit. And, and that, I think, is part of uh, what you've termed FCPA Incorporated. G- give us a little bit of a, a, an overview of, of your sense of what FCPA Incorporated is. Well, it, it's a really a shorthand term that I coined, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years ago to signify that this is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's not just law firms, it's accounting firms, it's compliance firms, it's conference firms. I'm part of FCPA Inc., I get that. I have a website, I have expert engagements in this area, I have limited corporate sponsorships of some of the work I do, I I get that. So it's not meant to be a derogatory term, I think people interpret it that way, but instead of writing and talking about FCPA law firms, accounting firms, compliance firms, conference firms, data firms. I mean, it's just a shorthand way to tell a truism. And that truism is that the FCPA area is a multi-billion dollar industry. There's nothing wrong with multi-billion dollar industries, but you sometimes have to take a step back and examine whether some of the things that happen in this area are simply feeding the beast or whether they're actually accomplishing anything other than feeding the beast. And then when you layer on to that, that the same enforcement attorneys who create the enforcement landscape that all businesses are subject to, create the enforcement theories, create the policies, then leave government for multi-million dollar positions in law firms offering legal and compliance device against advice against the landscape they created. I'm sorry, but I got some concerns about that. And do you see a, a way of improving that situation? In other words, if you were sort of the, the new attorney general, would you do anything differently? I mean, what would be your first things that you would do when it comes to the FCPA enforcement uh, approach? Well, I've long called for a five-year prohibition on FCPA enforcement attorneys with supervisory and discretionary authority, a five-year ban on them offering FCPA advice. Now, we're literally talking about, given how the DOJ and the SEC structure their FCPA units, we're literally talking about like seven to 10 people, right? So it's not like we're saying that a junior DOJ lawyer who was the fifth attorney on the small matter can't go into a law firm. We're talking about those with supervisory and discretionary authority. Why the Department of Justice and the SEC allows their enforcement attorneys to be marketed and sold by for-profit companies in terms of all these webinars you have to pay for, in terms of in the pre-COVID world, all these conferences is beyond me. It is smarmy. It's unethical. It doesn't look right when we have to pay to hear our public officials talk about a law, it's just not right. But they do it, they do it, they become rock stars, and then they go into their multi-million dollar positions at law firms. And all they really know is the secret sauce, that's it. I mean, they, they haven't tried cases, they're not, you know, FCPA grows and know the law like the back of their hands, they exercise leverage, they know the secret sauce, and they go into these multi-million dollar positions. 
Is your sense, Mike, that if the, if there was such a prohibition, if there was a five-year cooling off period or, or prohibition of, of entering uh, private practice doing FCPA work, that the, the people at the DOJ would treat their jobs differently? I mean, are, are you suggesting that they would not as, be as vigorous or not participate in some of these public-facing conferences? I mean, perhaps, but sometimes, you know, the appearance of a problem is just as worse as there actually being a substantive problem. You know, look at when these DOJ and SEC enforcement attorneys leave. The press releases are all about the numbers. This person resolved this many cases and brought in this many millions of dollars. Aren't they great? Well, that person exercised the government's extreme leverage over a risk-adverse company. Great, congratulations. But why is it all about the numbers for you? So, I mean, I, I think there might be less of a emphasis on on numbers if, if that happened but you know they're rational actors too they wake up knowing that with each passing year there's pressure by civil society groups by the international community to bring more 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 bigger bigger cases well at some point when does that end we're 42-ish years into this statute if the FCPA was being effective, should we not see less, not more enforcement? What's the what's the end point for this? That's something that, you know, when you're in private practice and you have billable hour requirements or you're in-house and you're just trying to stay above water, you don't think about, but quite frankly, it's something I think about a lot. What What's the end point for the FCPA? What does FCPA success actually mean? And you know, that's an open question. I kind of have my own thoughts on that. But what does success when it comes to this law actually mean? Well, you know, one of the one of the questions that uh, Andrew and I looked at when we did our Oxford Press book on, on uh, global enforcement, in other words, looking beyond the FCPA, one of the things we were looking at is whether other countries would essentially pick up uh, sort of where the DOJ was and begin to enforce uh, anti-corruption laws more vigorously, both in, within their country and extraterritorial, uh, extraterritorially. Do you have any thoughts on whether, and we've written a bit on Germany, for example, but do you have any thoughts on whether the U.S. enforcement approach has has uh, uh, been picked up or been co- emulated or copied by other countries, and and whether it should? Well, it, it certainly has been, you know, picked up. You know, taking a step back, I agree that one form of success is whether other nations begin to model the United States. But, you know, there I take a step back and I say, well, you know, Canada, Brazil, the UK, you know, it's a bit presumptuous to say that those sovereign nations are enforcing a law merely because the US is enforcing a law. In other words, in a hypothetical world, if the United States did not pass the FCPA in 1977 and did not enforce the FCPA much at all, would those other sovereign nations have FCPA-like laws that are enforced? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's a little bit U.S.-centric to think that those other nations are doing it just because the United States is doing it. But more specifically as to your question, there's absolutely no doubt that the concerning aspects of FCPA enforcement, the lack of judicial scrutiny, the use of alternative resolution vehicles is being copied and modeled, right? Five, seven years ago, the United States was the only country that had these 
when you think about it, very odd resolution vehicles, privately negotiated agreements that never see the inside of a courthouse, generally used to resolve multi-million dollar cases. That That's foreign to most other countries. But as the U.S. began to more frequently use non-prosecution agreements, deferred prosecution agreements, more recently declinations with disgorgement, other countries, not surprisingly, recognizing how easy this had become, recognizing how much money this was bringing in, other countries, not surprisingly, said, well, let's get those too. So I'm not so sure that other nations modeling U.S. enforcement tactics is necessarily a good thing. And, you know, here's a big picture point. There are some in this space who view more enforcement activity, regardless of the legal theory, regardless of the resolution vehicle used as an inherent good. I don't view more enforcement as an inherent good. I think quality enforcement is more important than quantity of enforcement. But tell that to the groups that rank countries and try to shame countries based upon the number of enforcement actions they bring. Yeah. And I and I think kind of on a related point, you know, we've you've talked about the deferred prosecution agreements, these declinations with disgorgement as being sort of a newer approach and 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 also just this focus on the number of enforcement actions. But, you know, you've been tracking this for, what, 20 years now very closely. You know, what, what else are you seeing in terms of how the enforcement approach has changed? And relatedly, you know, is this a change for the better? I think when the government had to prove a case to someone other than itself, that was a good system of law enforcement. The government has made it so easy for risk-adverse companies to resolve matters through these alternative resolution vehicles that no i i don't think fcpa enforcement has become better or more sound from a public policy standpoint yeah you know it's funny because the doj and the sec are constantly talking about the importance of individual accountability including in the fcpa context that was the whole point of the yates memo from what four or five years ago. Well, what does the data actually show? The data actually shows that individual prosecutions as it relates to corporate resolutions are, are down, historically down. You know, in the FCPA's early years, I'll say the first 20 years when we had old-fashioned law enforcement, in other words, you'd either charge a company that engaged in criminal behavior or you didn't charge a company. The vast, vast, vast majority of corporate resolutions had individual resolutions related to them. Well, it's the exact opposite in the modern era of FCPA enforcement. And my theory on that is because so many of these corporate cases aren't actual provable cases. And why would the DOJ or even the SEC civilly expose its enforcement theory in an individual matter where that person is much likelier to put the government to its burden of proof. And consider just one example. There have been 30 or so corporate resolutions based upon the enforcement theory that doctors, physicians, lab personnel, even a midwife are foreign officials on par with presidents or prime ministers. 30 corporate enforcement actions in which the government has secured probably over a billion dollars. Well, 
If individual accountability is so important, you'd think you'd see just one, just one individual prosecution in connection with those 30 corporate enforcement actions. But there's been zero, zilch, nada. What's a person supposed to think when such a prominent corporate enforcement theory never results in an individual prosecution? You might think, well, maybe that's not a very viable enforcement theory to begin with. And I'm curious uh, your thoughts on this, because I've wondered how much of that is a jurisdictional issue, right? Where, you know, even if the conduct can be proven, the individual actor is not not a U.S. person. They're not living here, you know, and so it's a it's a much bigger stretch to show that jurisdictional link, whereas it's easier to convince the company who's based here that they have, you know, the, the hook. I'm curious if, if you think that's playing part of the issue, part, you know, if that issue is playing into this lack of individual prosecutions, if we're actually looking at conduct by foreign actors more than, than U.S. actors at this point. I mean, I think that could play a small part in it. And if, let's say, half of these cases didn't result in individual prosecutions, you could maybe say, well, you know, half of them probably had some jurisdictional hooks. But considering the percentage is zero, I'm not sure that's what's at play, particularly when you consider that the individual prosecutions that the DOJ or even the SEC frequently bring, you know, go out on a limb in terms of jurisdiction as well, whether it's money passing through a U.S. bank account or emails passing through a U.S. server. In other words, I I mean, I, I hear your point, but then again, the DOJ uses these expansive jurisdictional theories when they do bring individual actions. And moreover, when you read a lot of these corporate cases, they do talk about U.S. citizens and people at corporate headquarters in a generic sense that were somehow culpable. Well, if they're going to allege it in a corporate enforcement action and if individual accountability is so important, why don't we see these flow through to individual actions and i think you know the answer is they're just not very viable provable cases and if you're the government why would you want to expose a lucrative enforcement theory to judicial scrutiny they're rational actors too it just doesn't make sense to do that when when you think about the why i mean one of the knocks on individual us attorney's offices often is that they indict a lot of individuals but they never go after corporations now we also can appreciate that most countries don't have the concept of corporate liability. In other words, co- corporations don't commit crimes. People commit crimes. So the knock on on individual U.S. attorneys' offices out in the field is that they don't in- indict companies enough and that they are too often going after individuals. And then I think your criticism is that the DOJ, main justice, FCPA unit, doesn't go after individuals enough and goes after corporations too often why do you think there is that contrast? Why, 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 how do you explain that, that criticism that you've made uh, about the FCPA unit not uh, indicting individuals or, or seeking to indict individuals? Uh, well, so many of these corporate cases are, are brought to the government on a silver platter, whether it's voluntary disclosure or whether it's hopping on to a foreign law enforcement investigation. They're easy for the government a process. And I'm using that word process intentionally. You know, I sometimes snicker when I 
hear that the DOJ and the SEC are enforcing the FCPA. Yes, in some circumstances, that is absolutely true. But I think in many circumstances, and obviously the statistic fluctuates per year, but in any given year, voluntary disclosures are anywhere from 40 to 50% of all corporate actions. I think the more accurate terminology there is that the government is processing corporate voluntary disclosures. The lack of individual cases in connection with those actions, I, I just think is, it takes time for the government to do this. It takes resources. They're very mindful that an individual who has his or her reputation, liberty, own pocketbook on the line is much more likely to push back and fight. And if you're the government, why would you want to expose yourself to that resource intensive exercise when you can just resolve the corporate enforcement action and wait for the next voluntary disclosure to take place or hop on to the next Brazil law enforcement investigation or German law enforcement investigation. And you know what's really interesting is so many of these individual prosecutions are clustered around the same core set of facts where like so many of the recent cases concern Venezuela and relationships with PDVSA. So when you really look at the numbers, the individual enforcement actions, when you look at core conduct, unique facts and circumstances are much more limited than they appear to be at first blush. And I know, you know, one other question that I'm sure people have asked you, and I know is floating out there, right, in terms of enforcement and the, the enforcement approach is, you know, we have a new administration, we have a, a new president who has not gone on record stating that he thinks the FCPA is ridiculous. You know, do you, do you think the enforcement approach is going to change in the next four years? I don't see FCPA enforcement changing in any material way during a Biden administration. You know, so many people, perhaps because of the circumstances of the 2016 election, were just totally breathless about how the FCPA was going to go away in the Trump administration. It was just absolutely positively ridiculous to begin with. But a Harvard Law professor said that, and if you're at Harvard Law School, you must know what you're talking about. So that statement literally was news. <laughs> well, guess what? It didn't happen. FCPA enforcement during the Trump administration was above historical averages. Now, I'm not saying that's because of Donald Trump. No, there are many areas of law, and I think the FCPA is one of them, that you know, are kind of on autopilot. When you consider so many of these cases are the result of voluntary disclosures, so many of these cases are not exactly the result of proactive U.S. law enforcement investigations. I, I don't really see any, you know, material change happening. You know, obviously, time will tell. Might there be some change in DOJ policy and connection with, you know, some things on the margins? Well, yeah, I mean, these new people want their names on the memos, too. So, I mean, there could be things like that. And believe me, FCPA Inc. will churn out client alerts galore saying this is now an opportune time to reevaluate your compliance program based upon this pretty meaningless development. But it's going to happen. Always does. But in short, I, I don't see much changing. This notion of voluntary disclosure is, at least on an academic level, kind of strange. This idea that, you know, you would, as a company, would say, we may have done something wrong. We're not 100% certain, but it's possible. And here, let us, you know, provide you, DOJ or SEC, all the information we have 
that shows why we may have done something wrong and kind of wait for you to bring a case. It's it's a strange notion on an academic level. You know, that is the policy. That's the way things are kind of set up right now with the enforcement pr practices. You know, as a private practitioner, when we're advising clients on how to navigate that, you know, do you think private practice has gone too far in, in proposing that companies, you know, immediately go forward? Or, or what's your thought on that? So I think it's a strange practice in practice as well, not just merely as an academic matter. There's a lot there. So let me make the rather self-obvious observation that we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. We know generally what percentage of corporate enforcement actions are the result of voluntary disclosure because the government will tell us that in the resolution documents. What we don't know is how many FCPA issues, given the current enforcement theories, could have been voluntarily disclosed that are or that are not. And that's kind of, you know, the unknown variable. I do know in connection when I was in private practice and I'm involved in not as a lawyer representing people, but as an expert engaged by counsel, my rough estimate is throughout my career, I've been aware of let's just say 10 instances that could have been disclosed that weren't. In none of those 10 instances did the government ever find out about it, to my knowledge. And in asking that question to practitioners, the answer is uniformly zero or maybe, maybe once or twice. So this notion that if you don't disclose, the government's going to find out about it, I don't think that's a very realistic possibility. Now, have the chances of the government finding out about it in the last decade maybe have increased from 1% to 2%? Yeah, probably. But that's still a very, very low probability. Moreover, I think we all can agree that not every FCPA issue is the same. Just like every speeding ticket is not the same. If you're if the speeding limit's 65 and you're going 67, well, that's speeding. Well, so is going 97 with a trunk full of crack cocaine. I mean, th those are different situations. Might there be some valid policy legal reasons for voluntarily disclosing? Yeah, you could easily create such scenarios. But here's an important thing that I don't think people recognize. There's some what I'll just call amateur FCPA commentators out there who look at the settlement amount, look at the 20% reduction the company allegedly got because of the voluntary disclosure and say, look at this great result that company A got. Well, you're forgetting about the fact that company A was under scrutiny for four to six years, spent three times that amount in terms of investigative fees and expenses. Their stock fell they had derivative actions and security fraud actions filed against them. In other words, what I'm saying is all government policy related to voluntary disclosure generally only focuses on the settlement amount. But the settlement amount is such a minor overall financial hit to the company when you consider the wide range of financial effects. So I think a lot of times corporate clients, boards, audit committees that are making this decision don't recognize that and don't recognize that in the vast majority of situations, it's perfectly legal, ethical, acceptable to investigate internally, remediate internally, improve internally, all without voluntarily disclosing. And I know we're close on time here, so maybe I will ask kind of the last question for the day, which is, you know, we've talked about kind of enforcement 
approach, but in terms of substance, you know, are there trends you're seeing if, if a, you know, companies are listening and they are in particular industries, are there industry focuses that you've seen recently? Are there, there trends that you're seeing in cases that, you know, are coming out, enforcement actions that have come out that, you know, we should be on the lookout for going forward? Well, on one level, I'd, I'd like to say that through my rigorous analysis, I've spotted this trend, but I'd be lying because I don't really see any trends. I mean, sure, every year there's going to be a flavor of the month, if you will. There's going to be, you know, a cluster of cases in, in this industry, but I don't really see anything different about FCPA enforcement in, in 2020 compared to 2018 compared to 2016. You know, so much of this is, you know, reactions, not proactive investigations of, you know, of course, there's been a huge amount of cases concerning, you know, South America, Venezuela, Brazil in the last three to five years. Well, that's largely the result of the ripple effects and, and tentacles of you know, Operation Car Wash or whatever that investigation goes by these days. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is, well, and then when you consider that so much of this stuff takes four to five years to resolve, what is going to be newsworthy in 2025 is probably things that are happening literally today. So I know that to be a respected commentator on one level, you're supposed to spot these trends, but I'm just saying I, I don't really notice any, but that's not a bad thing. It just kind of is what it is. Yeah. Function of who is who is going to the DOJ and what industry they're in. Yeah, on some level or as well as, you know, voluntary disclosures. I mean, it's well known that one company may voluntarily disclose in a unique industry and all of a sudden there's an industry sweep where if you rewind the clock and if company A made the decision not to disclose well none of that may have ever happened so you know a lot of this is not necessarily a well thought out strategic plan it's like a lot of things in life they just yeah. kind of happen well i know we are at our time so i want to thank you for you know talking with us today and on behalf of marcus as well since he had to drop but we really appreciate the insight and kind of hearing from someone who's been watching this closely for as long as you have it's it's a good perspective my pleasure thanks for having me on your podcast this concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.